HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the really ultimate privilege of having Scott, and I'm going to let you say your last name. Heimendinger. Heimendinger. That's a lot of vowels up and down. <laughs> sure. <you> know? <laughs> also known as the Seattle Food Geek, and now known as uh, part of the Modernist Cuisine Collective. Director of Applied Research for Modernist Cuisine. A dream job. A total dream job. I mean, you Geek were just... fantasy. <laughs> you were just telling me you were a fanboy of uh, Nathan and, you know, the, the cooking lab in general, and then, then this happened. This this must have been like, you know, pinch yourself moment. Oh, total. I mean, it's like it's like being cast as the red shirt guy on an episode of Star Trek. It's like <laughs> a, a geek dream come true. Yeah. Um, from very humble beginnings, you know, you... You weren't a food person. You lived in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your life like uh, as far as you know, food and cooking and eating went? So I, I would say I wasn't an enlightened food person. I, I, I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory way. My, my family loved food. Um, both my parents are fantastic cooks uh, and actually both went to uh, cooking school sort of as a, um, as a semi-vacation kind of thing. And so I grew up in a household where there's lots of home-cooked meals and where we had dinner at the dinner table on a regular basis. And I didn't realize that was a weird thing uh, or, or particularly unusual. Um, so I always loved food growing up. I loved entertainment. I love to cook, um, but I hadn't discovered that there was this whole other world of boundary <laughs> pushing and non-traditional and all of this kind of stuff until much later in life. Yeah, and I mean, your formative uh, collegiate years spent 
in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. That yes. wasn't really the hotbed uh, of cuisine at that time. No, Pittsburgh, uh, still not covered by the Michelin Guide for some reason. <laughs> um, it was definitely not a mecca of fine dining, but was a great place for cheap dining. As yeah. a college student, that's, there's a lot of greasy, cheap food in Pittsburgh, and it was wonderful. Well, what are some of the places? You, you mentioned, is it Permani or Permani Brothers? Yeah, Permani Brothers. That was That's sort of one of the iconic um, foods of Pittsburgh. It's a sandwich shop. That's what they're known for. And they make these sandwiches that have, you know, three pounds of pastrami or whatever on it with coleslaw and french fries in the sandwich. <laughs> and that's kind of, that's their thing. I mean, it's, it, it was sort of a, um, perhaps a, an, an ancestor of the KFC Sadness Bowl where they just kind of combine everything together. Well, I think it's a green initiative to throw everything into a sandwich so you don't waste more plates. Exactly. All that wax paper gets yeah. totally <laughs> saved. Ketchup. Isn't it yes. from Pittsburgh? Yep. yep. The Heinz family, very big in Pittsburgh. Um, and in fact, it was during my college years that I learned how to properly get ketchup out of the glass bottle. Oh, do tell. You hit you hold the bottle, uh, if you're right or left hand, you hold the bottle in your dominant hand at about a 45-degree angle, and you tap with sort of the base of your thumb, the blunt part of your wrist there, on the 57. There's a small 57 printed sort of at the base of the neck of the bottle. That's not the number of spices and flavors in there? It's the number of something, I don't yeah, know. but magical. But that's where you hit it. You hit it there, and ketchup comes out. This is... this. I, I don't know. We'll study the fluid dynamics of it, but it works. <laughs> Jack, I think this is the greatest tip that's ever been on the show, how to get the ketchup out of a Heinz bottle. See, I always thought you put a knife up there and spun it around. And yeah, th- it, that's a, a very primitive way to yeah. do it. <laughs> I never said I was educated. Um, pierogies. Yes, pierogies are a Pittsburgh thing. Um, uh, for, for people who don't know, they're uh, these potato dumplings, um, potato and cheese or onion or whatever, um, kind of in a sort of like a ravioli kind of thing. And that's part of the Pittsburgh cuisine. Um, a lot of the cooking I did in my college apartment was, you know, frozen pierogies in an Ikea skillet yeah. uh, with a little brown butter because you know, <laughs> I wanted to amp up the flavor. Oh, I thought uh, just because you had burned the butter a little bit. No, well, yeah, well, maybe on purpose. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Revisionist <laughs> history is not a big deal. Uh, so then leaving Pittsburgh, uh, you got your first job uh, with was it Microsoft or IBM? It was IBM. Yeah. Um, I, I studied information systems at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, um, which was totally perfect for me. I don't remember how old I was, but at a younger age, I'd watched the movie Real Genius with Val Kilmer. This is like a fantastic 80s. Yeah. Oh, I love the lasers in there. It's so cool. Yeah. It was all about lasers. Yeah. Lasers were the new technology and the new science. And they did things like, you know, they, they, they made some form of... Um, uh, 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 that, that it was an ice that sublimated directly to gas and they filled the hallways with it and they built their own bobsleds and then they had lasers that would draw out patterns in the sky and shoot across campus and all this kind of stuff. And I saw that movie at, and it was formative for me and I said, I want to go there for college. <laughs> and Carnegie Mellon was actually pretty close to that. You, you We... um. Uh, we're not particularly known for our football team or anything like that, um, but we are really good at robot soccer. (laughs) (laughs) World champions. So I love that while you were speaking of, well, I love the fact that Val Kilmer and Real Genius uh, popped up in our conversation, (laughs) but uh, sublimation. Yes. um, A term that will later be applied to all the food science and cooking that you do now. Um, How much of that information technologies of, of your, you know, collegiate major factors into what you do now well there's it's an unfortunate fact there's not that much software in cooking 
I mean, there's a, a little bit. Uh, and in fact, for modernist cuisine, which we'll, we'll talk more about, um, uh, they actually wrote a lot of software for that book to do mathematical modeling of heat transfer, all this kind of stuff. The thing that I think um, carries over into the modernist approach to cooking is an engineering mindset, right? Uh, it's a way of breaking down a problem into its constituent pieces, solving those pieces, and and also um, holding yourself to a standard of sort of scientific integrity, right? It can't be right just because somebody said so. It can't be right just because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. The, the numbers have to add up. The equation has to balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think just being, being a science geek, being um, an engineer of any kind can make you a little more rigorous as a cook, particularly if you're trying to develop new things. Well, it's setting up theorems, uh, engaging in analytics, you yes. know, dealing with logistical uh, numbers and research. Absolutely. I mean, it's not just all a flash in the pan. No, 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 no. And certainly there's an artistic component, you know, at modernist cuisine is the art and science of cooking. Um, and, uh, and food... Ha- is a lot about aesthetics. In fact, even though we can cook food in these new ways, we actually go out of our way to recreate traditional aesthetics. So the crisping of the skin on poultry or the searing on a steak, those things are delicious. But if we didn't do those, you would look sideways at that food, even though it's not necessary for, for the cooking. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think somewhere inside me is this artist who is dying to get out. Unfortunately, I have absolutely zero artistic talent with my hands. Um, give me Photoshop and I'll, I'll, and I'll make something. But um, yeah, it's a it's a cool way to express creativity and sort of geek out. Well, and also to meet and engage with new people, which you did in D.C. I mean, that, that, that was some of the fire lit underneath you uh, to start cooking. When you were there working, you know, uh, for IBM... DC's a hard town to meet people. It is. It's tough, and and I was I was pretty isolated when I moved to DC. Um, I had this apartment that was sort of outside the city a little bit, and uh, I knew a couple of people, but I was sort of on my own. So I had this brilliant idea. Okay, I'm going to start throwing dinner parties, right? And I'll have my friends invite their friends, and and. Turns out, <laughs> not a lot of 22-year-olds throw dinner parties and cook, but lots of them like to attend. Um, and if you can cook a little bit and you put out a spread, you're not so lonely after yeah. all. <laughs> so that was a way that I, I kind of built my social circles in D.C. and had a great time and started to develop um, an intuition for traditional cooking and and uh, build up a little bit of a cookware collection and, um, and get my feet wet in these recipes. And luckily, um, you know, my my family was a great support system for that. My dad in particular, I'd call him up, uh, from the grocery store and be like, okay, I'm thinking about getting a chicken. Tell me how I can do, uh, you know, how I can I roast it? What, what do I do with it? Whatever. And he'd sort of guide me through over the phone. And I think we reached uh, maybe a year or two ago an inflection point now where he calls me, <laughs> uh, which is, is very cool. Yeah. Um- Moving from D.C. to Seattle, mm-hmm. there was a change. I mean, not not just, you know, having the bounty of the Northwest at, at your disposable. Uh, there was an egg, a single egg. A single egg. At Maria Hines' Tilth that changed your life. Yes. Uh, there's this restaurant in Seattle. It's called Tilth. Um, uh, the chef who owns it is Maria Hines. She's a James Beard winner. She's fantastic. And this uh, Tilth is... Um, it, She's sort of an Alice Waters-esque 
figure. Uh, Tilth is an Oregon certified organic restaurant. It, they go out of their way. They have absolutely meticulous sourcing, um, and they're renowned in Seattle for that. And I went for a brunch one day, and this is uh, up to this point. I really enjoyed uh, traditional cooking, and I, I didn't know much about what else was out there. And I ordered steak and eggs, and the egg came next to the steak and some sort of frise salad. And this egg was different. This was not like an egg that I had had before. There was something. The the yolk was like, it was this puddingy, creamy, thick, amazing yolk. And the whites were, uh, it, it, was, it was way, way different. This was not a hard-boiled egg. This was not a soft poached egg. This was not a sunny-side-up egg. This was, this was something new. This was totally foreign. Somebody had violated the laws of <laughs> physics in cooking this egg. And... So I asked about it, and they said, oh, this, this egg is cooked sous vide. Sous vide uh, uh, is often uh, represented on restaurant menus under the term slow poached. That's sort of um, – uh, that's, that's how to sort of skate by with it. And after I discovered that, I, it, I, it sort of laid this path out in front of me. I said, okay, I have to understand what sous vide cooking is. I have to do it. I have to recreate it. And from there, I, I – I mean, I, I kind of like fell into Narnia and found this whole other world of modernist technique and all of this boundary pushing stuff that kind of said a big fuck you to tradition. We don't have to listen to your rules. We're going to do it the best way, not just the way that it's been done for 100 years. Yeah. And at this point, you were in Seattle also working for Microsoft. Yes. Yeah. I, I left IBM to uh, to work for Microsoft. Um, my career at Microsoft was in business intelligence. So I, I designed software for them. And although uh, my team got reorged, I never actually changed teams but I, I was on sort of five different products um uh, most of the a lot of the work i did ended up in excel um so i'm very much a numbers guy <laughs> i would consider myself in uh you know there's there's like we are the one percent or whatever i'm the probably 0.25 percent uh, of excel ninjas worldwide <laughs> which is definitely a double-edged sword yeah because people call you and they're like, Hey, uh, I'm trying to make a pivot table. And, uh, <laughs> um, but Microsoft was fabulous. Probably the best part, uh, about working at Microsoft was, um, that it gave me the time and resource to then like have the second life. I'd go home after work and I would totally geek out on cooking on reverse engineering, sous vide and how it worked and how to recreate it at home and and then from there to sort of tumble into the rest and then, then there was this guy named nathan that was hanging around the office there was this guy nathan um nathan is the godfather of modernist cuisine the, the book um he is also ex-microsoft he also uh, went to cooking school in france in fact the same cooking school that my parents went to sort of on vacation incidentally the same cooking school that i went to uh, with my parents i was in utero at the time <laughs> uh so they do not acknowledge my degree or my certificate of completion which i, I think is bullshit that's yeah. semantics but um uh, yeah, Nathan was uh, the first CTO at Microsoft. He started the Microsoft Research Division. He also was a postdoc under Stephen Hawking. He also leads expeditions that uncover lots of T-Rex fossils. He also studied penguin feces in the Arctic and the and did some geometrical calculation on the, their dispersion patterns. To, he is he is a polymath. He is a genius. Um, and 
it turns out that he also is a Seattleite and had this research lab and was producing modernist cuisine, more or less, uh, in Seattle's backyard, um, which was extreme serendipity for me. Yeah, and he's hungry. And he's hungry. (laughs) For knowledge and food. But we're going to take a quick break, come right back, and talk about the cooking lab and modernist cuisine at home. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Here today with uh, Scott Heimendinger of the Cooking Lab slash Modernist Cuisine at Home. Uh, it's an amazing book. You know, I've had the privilege of seeing, well, the six-volume Modernist Cuisine and this. And just the, the way things are conveyed and the attainability, you know, because that was a daunting and expensive and heavy uh, uh, volume. I mean, it was a tome. And, and what this does uh, is makes these things seem like you were saying before, the best ways you know, new ways aren't necessarily like experimental and out there. They're just uh, building on what we already know. And that's why this is such a, an amazing project to have been a part of. Yeah, it's it's very cool. I mean, the certainly the original Modernist Cuisine, the six-volume set that came out last year, um, did a lot to um, bring to light these the, the Modernist movement. I mean, it, it really documents things that lots of chefs have been doing worldwide, but democratizes that information. The problem, it, the problem for some people, is that if you really want to cook your way through modernist cuisine, well, 
it's very helpful to have a centrifuge and a rotary evaporator <laughs> and, you know, an ultrasonic homogenizer and a particle accelerator and yeah. a space station. Well, we, we have Dave Arnold on the show before mine, and he has all that stuff. Yep. So if you ever need to borrow a centrifuge, call in Dave's show. Well, I, actually, I, I've got one in my basement. At home. <laughs> I keep it in the basement because I'm a little afraid of it. They're uh, uh, centrifuge gone wrong. Uh, just... Just do a web search for centrifuge explosions. It looks like C4 went off. It's, there's a lot of energy in there. Is, is it the one in your basement, too, if you search YouTube? No, no. Thank God that one hasn't gone yet, but um, I, I hope my insurance will cover yeah. it. Um, but, so we, we took the insights uh, about the, the things that happen when you cook, the actual physical processes that go on when you cook. We took those insights from the original modernist cuisine, and we said, let's make a book where... People at home with the equipment they already have, or maybe a few other things that you can easily find at a kitchen store, where they can apply those techniques to make incredible food. And not just great recipes, but actually teach them about how this cooking works and hopefully help them become better home cooks. Well, I mean, let's talk about some of those countertop tools. I mean, not not everyone has a digital scale and digital thermometer, but once they do, it changes their life. Oh, yeah. If you don't have a digital scale and digital thermometer, you should. Like, go buy one. There's, they're not expensive. You don't need to buy some ridiculously pricey thing. You can buy the $15 thermometer and the $15 scale and you're good to go. There's um, when you're particularly dealing in um, hydrocolloids. So hydrocolloids is a term that encapsulates uh, a lot of different ingredients that typically white powders. I've got a big collection of them in my basement. If the DEA ever came, I was <laughs> totally screwed. Um, uh, these are these are things like xanthan gum, um, even you know flour, starches, uh, 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 agar, gelatin. Those things are hydrocolloids. Um, and we use them a lot for thickening, for creating the right texture for lots of things, for sauces, for soups, for foams, for whatever. Those things are used in very small quantities. And if you're off by a little bit, it, it can dramatically change the thickness, the result, the whatever. So you have whatever. to be exacting. You have to be exacting. And it turns out that like, you know, teaspoons and tablespoons are not very precise. They're actually not standardized very well. And depending how you level it and depending on the clumping and the humidity and the particle size and all of this kind of stuff, you'll get vastly different results. But if you're just weighing the damn thing, uh, you'll be very accurate and you'll get better, more repeatable results every time. A digital thermometer is is the same. A lot of uh, chefs develop this great intuition for the doneness of things. You know, you can touch the steak and kind of feel based on its resistance uh, about how far it's cooked. We have this spread in modernist cuisine at home and in modernist cuisine as well of eggs. It's a double page spread that shows eggs cut in half. And I think there's, there's maybe um, a dozen or so, maybe 15 uh, different temperatures of those eggs. And it shows you the relationship between temperature and texture of that egg. And three degrees makes a hell of a difference <laughs> in the temperature of your egg. Um, so if you really want repeatable, precise results and don't want to feel like, oh, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't know what happened. Well, you need to adopt some standards of precision and the digital thermometer and digital scale are the best entry yeah, to Yeah, you know, it was so funny. I was thinking about the body itself and how we interpret and ingest food and, you know, uh, 98.6. Uh-huh. When you have a hundred degree temperature, something's off. Yeah, and I mean that's not a huge scale. No, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a really great point. Incidentally, it turns out that the 
um, the best cooking temperatures for different foods are slightly above their living body temperature, right? So the temperature for the doneness of fish is quite a bit colder than the temperature of the doneness for steak or something like that. That's because the body temperature of fish is quite a bit lower than the body temperature of a cow because they live underwater and it's quite cold. Um, I just thought that was sort of an interesting thing. That is, yeah. No, that's a fat... So uh, check the temp of the live thing before you cook it and just up at a couple degrees. There you go. (laughs) I would recommend washing the thermometer after putting it in the live cow. (laughs) Yeah, I I would recommend not putting it in the live cow. You you don't want to see the reaction. (laughs) Yeah, and if you do, don't stand directly yeah. Behind it. <laughs> so uh other other equipment silicon mats frothers paco jets which you know i i covet like everybody else they're all in the book blow torches and they it's not like one-offs it's not like you're going to use the paco jet for this one recipe it, it is a very vital thing to cook through this book in modern cuisine at home we actually start out with a whole section on equipment um and this is not this is not sort of like the lust list of you know fancy esoteric things that you only find in a couple places in the world this is uh, we actually give a prioritized list of if you're going to buy one thing buy this and it's a, a, a digital scale if you're only going to buy two things get the thermometer um, and then we go through this list. We tell you about the things to look for when you're selecting a pressure cooker, when you're selecting a, a blender, things like that. Um, and then we tell you how to use those tools in a lot of different ways. We also tell you about things that you already own. So, for example, your home oven. We show you how to calibrate your oven. Did you know that your oven probably is highly inaccurate. Oh, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, and any home oven, turn it on and actually measure the temperature. It's likely off by 25 degrees Fahrenheit easily, and that makes a difference. Um, we, we've we got all these great things for um, how to use your microwave in, in cool ways for dehydration, making beef jerky, for frying herbs in your microwave, um, even this siphoned... A microwave sponge cake that's absolutely oh, yeah. incredible so it's this is not you, you don't have to buy this book and then think oh my god okay now i have to go buy all this equipment like with photography you buy the camera body and you think you're done yeah no <laughs> no you're gonna pay two or three times that in lenses and yeah. lights and all this kind of stuff um that's not the case here you're not you know committing yourself to then go spend thousands of dollars on new gear it's it's really aimed at the things that you likely already own or that we can sort of gently nudge you to acquire because we think they will really be versatile things that help you cook better. Well, I mean, speaking about pantry too, you've already mentioned agar, agar, and xanthan gun. Um, I think a lot of people are put off about buying those things because one, they think, you know, modernist cuisine isn't for me. And two, it's an investment I don't want to make. But the small amount you have to use per recipe, it's it's like uh, buying something that sits in your pantry for, you know, 20 years. Like, I didn't know I had this spice because you don't really need much of it, but it is in most, if not all recipes. Yes. Yeah. They're they're used quite often. um, But they're they are used in very very small amounts i mean if you buy a, a pound of guar gum for example that will thicken a swimming pool you know you're, you're nobody gonna, get any ideas about that yeah well, yeah well, have fun yeah. Uh, um so so these are things that are used in in very small amounts and have very long shelf lives in general um we use them though not not just to be weird not to be like alt and like hey you know sucks to your flour we're gonna use something else we actually use them um uh, in a lot of places, instead of starches, because uh, 
let's let's take uh, sauces for example. You want to thicken a sauce, right? A very traditional way to do that is to thicken with flour. You make a roux or whatever. Um, uh, flour is uh, starch, and starch inhibits the perception of flavor. Um, so you're adding all this flour to your sauce. You're thickening up your sauce just fine, but it's actually diluting. It's muting the flavor of that sauce. If you use other hydrocolloids, other ingredients, gelatin, uh, xanthan, uh, the appropriate ingredients for that use, you're able to um, achieve the same consistency, but without diluting it nearly as much. Uh, so you get bolder flavors, uh, which I think is very cool. Yeah, um, a couple of these other pantry items. One which I found, found mind-blowing is uh, sodium citrate. Yeah. Because you, you're doing this video series on chow.com called mm-hmm. Modern Kitchen, but it's M-D-R-N-K-T-C-H-N. It's spelled all lease. Yeah. Um, <laughs> melting cheese. There are so many amazing cheeses out there, uh, American farmstead cheeses, uh, that you do want to melt and you want to pour over nachos. You know, you want to do high-low uh, cuisine. But a lot of them break, and why? And what does sodium, uh, sodium citrate do for that? Well, so the, we're in a, a weird moment in the history of cheese right now, I think. Right On one hand, we've got all of these incredible small producers making these super flavor, flavorful cheeses. It's like this renaissance of cheese, which is so incredibly cool. On the other hand, um, there are the processed cheeses, and I, I think we're pretty close to the Nirvana melting stage in processed cheese, right? Like Velveeta melts perfectly. Uh, The Kraft Single cheese slice is designed to melt really perfectly. The problem is they are their flavor. They are not the flavor of these other cheeses that you might know and love. And if you were to take, um, you know, some small produced cheddar or Stilton or whatever and grate it and heat it up and melt it, you'll get this oily mess. The oil will separate out from the cheese. The cheese will probably burn. um, And it's a big disaster. The reason for that is that cheese is an emulsion. um, And when you heat it, naturally, it falls out of emulsion. The emulsion breaks and the fat separates from the protein in the cheese. a little sublimation going on. Well, sort of. Yeah, we've got a a phase change of sorts. Um, Now, it turns out that uh, James L. Kraft of the Kraft Corporation figured out a way to fix this problem, the the cheese-breaking problem, um, and that technology ultimately ended up in Velveeta. Well, you can do this at home with an ingredient called sodium citrate. Sodium citrate is an emulsifying salt that's produced from citric acid. It's a, there's a uh, that component. I mean, in it. from citrus in a sense. Yes. Um, you know, and, and I really want to uh, hammer this into people's heads a little bit that all these things we say, sodium citrate, they're not weird. They're not crazy. No. I mean, they're derived from. Uh, organic uh, living things. Sodium citrate is no weirder than sodium chloride, which, by the way, is salt. Yeah. Right? (laughs) That's table salt. Um, uh, Sodium citrate, uh, when you combine it with cheese and and a little bit of liquid, you can actually prevent the cheese from breaking, which means you can make this incredible cheese sauce that melts perfectly with no oily separation from your favorite cheeses, all of that flavor. And you're not diluting it with starch. You're not like, you know, when you make fondue, right, you typically add a lot of wine because that helps um, act as a a buffer for this. Um, You have this pure, incredible cheese flavor with perfect melting qualities. And you can make your own cheese slices to put on a burger and have perfect melting. You can 
drop macaroni in there and you've got this uh, unworldly cheese sauce on your macaroni that's incredible pour it over nachos i mean you can you can like pour it straight into your mouth <laughs> it's, it's it's actually it's probably a good way to go you know like yeah. if, if, if this is your last day on earth yeah to have at it man so yeah there's a fatalist section at the end of modernist <laughs> yes. at home. no there isn't but there should be um other videos you've done for chow or are going to do for chow uh, carbonating fruit hacking grill into a perfect pizza oven mm-hmm. uh, uh you've also done uh studies of you know the best pizza doughs using champagne that that was one of the craziest one but i want to stick with bar food because you have a video coming out about chicken wings which yes it's kind of my lifeblood tell me about it so even though we are modernist cuisine and even though we do all of these very very fancy foods foie gras things um there's no reason to think that uh informal food should deserve any less treatment than formal food. If you really care, you should be able to um, dote the same amount of affection onto a food like chicken wings as you would onto duck confit. Um, we have an entire chapter on chicken wings in Modernist Cuisine at Home. We uh, have half a dozen different ways of preparing the wings and sauces to accompany them. My favorite and the one that I've demoed on uh, chow.com that's coming out soon is... Um, are Korean style chicken wings. These like are banchan. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, very much like that. These are the crispiest goddamn wings I've ever had in my life, and the sauce is so good that I keep a bottle of it in my fridge at all times. I will open a can of tuna and put this sauce on it and just be happy. <laughs> like the other night, I needed a midnight snack. I put the Korean wing sauce on a rice cake, and I was good <laughs> to go. Uh, so, so it's uh, we we love chicken wings, and and these wings are particularly. Tell awesome. me the process of these banchans. Sure. So, um, the first step is that you marinate the wings in sort of an Asian marinade, some rice wine or shaoxing uh, wine, and some soy sauce, and and things like that. Um, then you uh, add in. Uh, potato starch and wondra wondra is old school it's a it's a pre-gelatinized uh flour and it's uh, the the main use of wondra which your grandmother probably used it for was to thicken gravy and the reason that it's so good at that is because it's pre-gelatinized it doesn't clump up like regular flour does if you were to just pour flour into your sauce right it would clump you have to coat it with fat first um wondra doesn't do that the mixture of potato starch and wondra forms this very thin batter around the wings and because it's like packed full of starch when you fry the wings they become so crispy i mean they're ridiculously crispy and amazing and then you toss them in this korean wing sauce which is basically gochujang um, my new favorite ingredient on the planet and you know some sugar and soy sauce and a few other things Uh, and they're amazing i i was i was testing the recipe at home and i invited a buddy over uh, and i went to the asian grocery store and i bought some um you know raw uh, chicken wing pieces and uh, but they they only sold them in like four pound quantities. So I, I thought, what the hell? I'll make four pounds of these. My buddy and I polished those off <laughs> because it shows. It was really hard to get him in the studio through this door. I'm just yeah, kidding. thanks. Yeah, um, it's an amazing uh, job you've done, job you have, and uh, book you've put out and produced. And there are over four hundred recipes from things like you know roast chicken, the braised short ribs, uh, pressure cooked veggie soup. All these microwave custards, pies, uh, uh, you know, pizza, mac and cheese. It's, it's just mind-blowing. All the new ideas in, in what are, you know, standardized almost food here in the U.S. And around the world, too, because there's paella. And just, it just, 
this is a very uh it's like the diet tome because it's not you know 400 500 pounds of you know 2000 pages carrying around it's it's a wonderful addition to anybody's you know bookshelf well thank you we're very happy about it and uh um slowly but surely i'm gonna work my way through all those wings and have that bottle of sauce in the fridge at all times (laughs) (laughs) scott thank you so much for being on my pleasure and you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.